my case for this is we have the data to show that a bear is psychological. We know that bears are psychological uh, because people sell exit rallies. They look for any kind of exit liquidity. We know that these things, and there's, there's so many concepts from like traditional finance where you hear, you know, these anecdotes, right? The smart money always it's sells subjective terms that don't have any meaning. Exactly. But in, in the on-chain space, we can see it. We can literally right. see all of these people who've held their coins for a short period of time, they have a beautiful skill of selling the exact bottom of a bull market correction and buying the exact top. They're fantastic mm -hmm. at it. So mm -hmm. you see these anecdotes play out over and over. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Arcos Global Advisors or its advisors. The mention of different asset types or securities do not constitute a recommendation for our clients. If you have any questions about the content of this podcast, please contact your advisor. In this episode of Navigating Bitcoin's Noise, I am joined by Checkmate, lead on-chain analyst at Glassnode. In our discussion, Chuck shares the importance of taking an engineer's approach to truly understand what drives and supports a market below the surface. We cover how on-chain analytics allow one to monitor value flowing through the Bitcoin network and what that tells us about the behavioral characteristics of various investor types that make up the markets. We dive into Bitcoin bear markets, what metrics define them, what role memes play, and what factors separate a bull from a bear. If you're looking to better understand Bitcoin's past and its future potential as an economic network, then join us and listen in. All right, everybody, thanks for joining today. I have on with me Checkmate, who is the lead on-chain analyst at Glassnode. Check, thanks for joining. And why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and kind of how you got into uh, on-chain analytics and, and what's important to you? No, it's uh, it's been a process. So I, uh, I so I used to be a civil engineer, uh, designing tunnels and mines and uh, pretty much anything underground, earthquakes. Um, and uh, I started. I found, I mean, I, I bought the exact top in 2018, so that was my uh, my kind of entry point. Um, and that was the first asset I ever bought, and uh, kind of rode the thing all the way all the way down. Lost 90% multiple times. And it wasn't until uh, you know back end of 2018 that I started to find on-chain analytics. And it was, it kind of mapped onto, uh, I mean, a big part of my job as an engineer was taking big data and visualizing complex problems. And then the next layer of that is explaining those complex problems to the layman, um, right? Stakeholders don't need to know about all the, uh, the detailed engineering inputs. They just need to understand why their building's not going to fall over. Exactly. So it was very much about uh, distilling information. So yeah, I, I was kind of there when on-chain really started to get some early traction uh, back in the, the Dave Fuel and the Willy Woo days of 2018. And, uh, you know, started playing around with the coin metrics free data uh, around that time, 2019, 2020, and uh, started to find people had an appetite to, to learn more, um, albeit very, very small scale, but uh, started kind of um, doing the occasional webinar and just teaching folks how to, you know, what is realized price, what is realized cap, why is it useful? And uh, it's kind of evolved from there. And then uh, the opportunity with Glassnode came around uh, 2021. Well, that's a great story. I mean, I think um, what, what impresses me the most, and, and I think it comes from the engineering background, that was something I was going to talk about, kind of just one of the things I wanted to talk about. Your analysis is, is much more in-depth. It takes in a lot of, it feels to me like it takes in a lot of what the market is telling you, not what you want to tell the market. Um, and I think over the last couple of years, as, as on-chain analytics has, and analysis has gotten a lot bigger, 
a lot of the faces and a lot of just the charts and, and things that you see posted look a little more like, Hey, this is what I, the story I want to tell, not like the story that the market's the telling. ability of it all. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, which is fine. I mean, everything has to be marketed and you have to get attention, but I really value, value kind of the process that it looks like you do, which is, let me, let me look at this. Let me look at the details of, of what the data says and then just interpret that. Yeah. It's, it's a bit of an interesting thing. And, you know, I, I always use the uh, like engineering analogies. Um, a good example is, you know, if you're looking at leverage, uh, the thing you're trying to move is the market size and uh, how much force you're applying to it, which is the leverage. And naturally, when the leverage is large relative to the thing you're moving, uh, you start having uh, ha- having momentum. So, um, and using those things, those terms tend to ground it in some kind of reality. Um, I, I do, and that's the thing, right? Um, if we looked at technical analysis, I mean, how many technical analysis charts do you scroll by on Twitter every day and you think, mm-hmm. oh, you don't look at the lines. I don't know what this is. This guy's rubbish. Um, it's the exact same thing. And uh, on chain is one of these things where it's very new. Uh, a lot of people haven't gone through the process of fully understanding it. And there's also, it's a fair share of valid critiques, right? Yeah. There is, um, uh, there's a lot of argument over whether it's a, a short-term versus a long-term. Um, and, uh, you know, even internally, we talk about, uh, you know, some folks do just use it for macro. Um, and, you know, in my opinion, you can use it for both timeframes, albeit with the correct nuance. Correct. Um, so, you know, looking at active addresses on a one hourly time frame and uh, entering and exiting uh, could be a bit tricky, but there's certainly metrics like, you know, things like SOPR and profit and loss and uh, things you absolutely can start to build these, uh, these shorter term models, um, uh, just at understanding what's going on, what's the general momentum. Uh, but it is, it, it's a nuanced field. And uh, like, uh, I think it's probably two good analogies. One is behavioral economics, mm-hmm. trying to bring human psychology into the mix is really, really important. Um, and the other one is, uh, uh, oh, what does it say? Um, so, so that's his core point is it's behavioral economics. And the other one, mm-hmm. you can look at it as just standard economics, right? Economists are yeah. looking at GDP numbers and, and CPI. And then what they're doing is they're saying, these are the numbers that we get given, but now let's dissect the nuance of how these are actually constructed, right? So um, higher level analysts will take, oh, look, this is the CPI print. That means that, you know, inflation is this. Um, yeah, they definitionally analysts. say this is what's supposed to happen when that number prints. Correct. Whereas the detailed analysts will go, actually, if we unpick that and we look at, you know, let's remove all the seasonality adjustments and remove this and that, um, the, the, the good analysts of which you have to think to understand what they're saying, they're not as meme worthy, but their analysis is more detailed and they will actually unpick the numbers and fully understand how they came to it. So, you know, there, there's edge on both sides of these things and you can take it to be as nuanced or as memeable as you want. And, and there was a couple of points in there that, that you touched on. So I have a technical background, technical analysis. Uh, I think it gets, uh, in fairness, it gets a bad rap because you do have people just slapping lines on charts and, and not really thinking through the fundamental parts of it. Where are the algorithms sitting? Where are the trade? What what support and resistance are the traders looking at? Because then that feeds into psychologically, what's going to happen when those points are met or when those points are breached? And that's a lot of what. And I, I don't go deep into on chain. I just try to surface level. What's the key charts and the key data sets that just give you an idea? Do these technical support and resistance level do these technical trends align with what that fun because i view the on-chain as being fundamental that Mm -hmm. that's the that is the purest signal out there and 
do they align? Do they not align? And if they don't align, okay, well, which one do I need to go do more homework on or look into further to see why it might be off, which is where you get into different timeframes. But I often, you know, I, I follow guys who do, and I often see these levels. I'm like, that's exactly the level I'm looking at. So there's right. often confluence between these things. Um, often it lines up with a FIB level or a 618 or something yep. like that. Yep. Um, or, you know, long-term support at 30K. And you see mm-hmm. all of these these fundamental levels all line up. And you think, man, this is, there is something here. There's confluence. They, do, they don't, because if you get really technical, it's more than just line. You just have the, the lines as a guide. And then there's math behind these, you know, chart setups and in, in a environment or in a market, like your traditional markets that are massaged, they're manipulated. Like I'm not being negative. They are, they, mm-hmm. they just have big players that can push things around. They have other tools that can push prices in a certain direction. So the traditional chart formations don't always work. And then you add into that, you've got black boxes where everybody's looking at the same trends. So people front run it. And then you've totally. got, um, you know, fund managers that all chain hold the same position. So if one large enough fund manager exits or enters, then it forces all of the rest of them to because of all the indexing and all of that. So it's a classic example. And you'll see so many of these events where um, particularly, uh, you know, uh, critics of Bitcoin, they'll often point at all these things like, oh, look, the market's manipulated or, oh, look, you know, it's all driven by derivatives. It's all leveraged. Mm-hmm. And they're like, hang, hang on a second, Mr. Traditional Finance Fund Manager. You realize the market that you operate in is kind of a, you created 100%. these tools and has yeah. done it at 100x uh, yep. for many, many years. It's amazing. Like it's, it's almost like this cognitive distance. They can't see that the same actors, the same players, the same incentives, it's all part of that game. And we're just a far, It's far an earlier game. stage. And, and that's what some of the stuff I did uh, in in December, January, November was pointing out that fact that, hey, this is a new pristine asset class. Unfortunately, with mass adoption comes that change of psychology. With mass adoption comes Wall Street and the short term nature. And how do we take other you know, derivative products to cause price spot price to move around? Or how do we create revenue streams off these derivative prices because we can build bands around spot that, that profit for the institution or for the hedge fund or whatnot. Um, and so, and you've seen price change, you've seen spot market price change because of those things. And it's not unique. It's just, if you follow the path of money over the history of money and, and over the history of time, you have pristine collateral come in and then financiers figure out ways to, to game it for profit. And That's um, it. It's unfortunate, but it's just the the reality of humans. It gets onto uh, a lot of what uh, Ben Hunt Epsilon Theory talks about, right? The, yeah, uh, the Bitcoin dot TM. Uh, he's uh, where... he's going to come in um, in a couple of weeks. Oh, is he? No, no, he's uh, he he has been very on point with that kind of thing. He's he's excellent at understanding the narrative game of it all. Um, you know, he does an excellent job of really characterizing that Wall Streetification. And in many ways, you almost have to look at the problem and say, Can, are we immune to this? Is this uh, is this mm-hmm. kind of the end destiny? Um, in many ways, that's why, you know, things like um, self-custody and privacy solutions and these things are important. They're really important to push forward. We're a long way from final solution. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also, you know, the, the more time I spend with this market, you know, I, I am aware that uh, one of the big risks we have is that a huge proportion of the market simply doesn't want to hold their own keys. Correct. This is just a reality of it. And yeah. Um, you know, we, we can all debate over whether that's right or wrong. It actually kind of doesn't matter because that's the reality. And thus, we must deal with that reality. So it's, a, it's an interesting game. 
crowds ultimately drive the market. I mean, there was this idea that crowds are always wrong. You know, before we had big data and data sets where you say, hey, actually crowds are the signal mm-hmm. and the narratives that get pushed around that kind of nav- make the crowd navigate, that ultimately wins. But the crowd is usually right. Uh, it, it was just kind of hidden for a long time. But now that data is out in the open for anybody out there to have, you can see that they are right. But to your point, you know, banking has existed for centuries and it will exist for centuries. In my opinion, as as human needs change, their psychologies around what their money needs to do changes. But that notion of, as you just said, 90% of people or, or 70% at best just don't want to be responsible for it. I'm with you. I agree that that's probably not the right answer, but most people don't want to jump through all the hoops just to get access to their money, to transfer it, to spend it, whatever it may be. I mean, you know, gold's a, a perfect example of that. I mean, it's the only money to last throughout time, but, you know, people will pay somebody else to custody it because they don't want to worry about somebody coming and robbing their house or their house burning down and something happened to that gold. I would imagine it would still be there unless it got hot enough, but um, there's just a lot of different problems that most people, the average person just wants to kind of live and, and not worry about, but the beauty of it, it offers solutions for industry. Right, no, that, and, and the other side is the uh, the optionality, right? As long as we, and this is where it becomes, you know, whether it goes into the legal realm or whatever it is, um, the, the the fight to make sure that self custody remains an option is yeah. just fundamentally absolutely important. As soon as that gets taken away, I suspect we'll see arbitrage. Uh, mm-hmm. However, that is a serious blow because that then seriously does put it into the gold uh, gold camp, um, which is it's been one of my long term risks. Um, for Bitcoin is essentially the goldification of it, uh, yeah. where it essentially just just purely gets turned into an investment vehicle. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe the ETF is where that 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 really um, hits the ground, um, but certainly that is a risk. Uh, is that a? Ju- I mean, we all know that gold should be uh, orders of magnitude higher than where it is, um, but there just is so much short selling uh, going on in paper markets and uh, inflation of the supply essentially. Um, that you know, essentially, it's been a completely neutered asset, and that is a genuine, serious risk uh, for Bitcoin. Probably one of the biggest ones. But again, and, and we saw that. I, I think, and that was kind of one of the things I wanted to get your opinion on, as someone that's deep into on chain and seeing the data and seeing the flows. You know, last year there was a lot of this risk-free rate, forty-five percent. And if you've been in any market, you know, yes, that stuff exists. Yes, you can do it, but you can't repetitively do it over time. And and really all that is, is an indicator of mass amount of leverage. That's the signal, in my opinion, that like, hey, things are out of whack. And, and that arbitrage collapses, whether it goes to zero and the underlying asset gets crushed, which we saw, or it just, the, the ARB, you know, the price and the ARB come in until they meet and, and it's removed. So I think that was one of the, bigger misinterpreted in the charts. Even if you looked at a lot of the the on-chain data charts, you just say, hey, um, you know, great chart, but it's saying the exact opposite thing that that you're putting out here in this meme. What's your what's your thought on on just kind of that period in in Bitcoin and other uh, digital assets? No, absolutely. And this is one of those things where the uh, the, the beauty of hindsight. So I've had a lot of time um, spent really analyzing what happened. So we're kind of talking about that January through to April period, 2021. Yeah. And, you know, when we look at it, the, the number of what I would call bearish divergences is just absolutely astounding. So January, um, and you could argue February was the peak. 
yes. um, in terms of the fundamental momentum of the market. And when we look at everything from you know active addresses, transaction counts, transaction volume, um, basically people using the network, so the on-chain activity, all of those started to make a significant, so price was kind of curling over and making highs, whereas all of those metrics were trending the other direction. So there's your, your bearish momentum. Um, you can also see this in things like momentum oscillators. You can see this in um, um, coin day destruction, like all of the lifespan metrics. You saw an enormous influx of coin that actually happened during that initial rally. And um, simultaneously, you've got things, as you mentioned, you had the GBDC arbitrage, which dried up pretty much at the exact top. Um, transition from that to net, you know, buy side uh, being sent into GBC to arb that down. We also saw things like our futures markets were trading at just insane premiums, whether it's in uh, funding rates or in cash and carry trades. Um, so all of those just created a natural bid to, to arbitrage down in an era of zero yields. Um, and in, in support of all of that, we genuinely did see an institutional adoption. To this day, we still see that one million plus dollar transactions remain the dominant flow of funds through the network. Um, so we have seen this institutional entry into the system. Um, and we also saw the currency debasement of 2020s. And this is where I think a lot of the narrative has actually been uh, misguided um, over the last, uh, let's call it year. Um, people call Bitcoin an inflation hedge. And I, I personally, I don't agree with it. I don't think it is an inflation hedge. Um, I think it's a debasement hedge. Mm -hmm. So when we saw the initial impulse of debasement, Bitcoin did exactly what it needed to do. It ran hardest, fastest, and first. And what we then saw is, I can't remember who the uh, the economist was that described it this way, but all the money that the government printed um, is the sheep. And then you've got a python that comes and eats the sheep. Now that mm -hmm. sheep doesn't just disappear and get consumed. It's going to take you know two months racing and sit in the stomach and just slowly dissolve away. That's essentially what we're going through at the moment. So the inflation is the impact, what happened as a result of that initial ingestion of money. And during that time, as we've seen, risk assets take, uh, and, and not even risk assets, gold's down, bonds are down, everything's down. Inflation That's the interesting thing. If you look over the last seven or eight months, and I look at it on stockcharts.com, they have a relative rotation graph, and I've posted sometimes, there is no asset. I mean, gold oh. is relatively flat. The dollar's up 8%. Um, there's one other, oh, just commodities. Commodities yeah. are up 30%. And specifically energy. And a lot of that is just genuine supply squeeze. It? Yeah. And some of it's monetary, but a lot of it is just simply we don't have enough of it. Um, so, you know, when you can combine all these things, I, I always disagree with the inflation hedge. The debasement hedge makes perfect sense. And yeah. it did exactly what it needed to do. And if we then look at, and, you know, I look at things like. Um, I think know, the confusion there, though, is that debasement does cause that inflation. So there's, it, it, the, yeah. And, and Peter. one after the other. Yeah. Peter Thiel at Bitcoin 2022, you know, we caught up and had, had some good talks. That's where I learned about your engineering background. I was like, okay, that makes sense now because you've got to look at your inputs to figure out your output. You can't look at your output to figure out your inputs. I mean, you could, but it's just harder. Uh, he, his chart where he showed that, uh, I think it was 2020, you know, the ramp, you know, that was the indication that inflation is coming. Correct. And then it took another two years for inflation to feed through. So it's sorry. the last remaining working fire alarm, right? So mm -hmm. that, that is Bitcoin's role. Um, gold clearly didn't perform the same way. Um, Bitcoin really did respond to that impact. Um, and again, if we look at uh, Bitcoin compared to, you know, look at most tech stocks. I mean, most mm -hmm. tech stocks have given back 100% of their 2021 growth, 2020 to 2021. They're basically back at pandemic or pre-pandemic levels. 
um, Bitcoin continues to trade at a 50% premium um, to where it was. I mean, even more so, it was at 10,000, we're at about 29 yeah. now, right? So yeah. 230%, 290. Um, so we're sitting significantly higher than when that initial impulse happened. So, and again, you know, I, I also, um, there's an issue where people are just like, oh, look, zoom out of the last 10 year performance. Like, okay, but that's not relevant for anyone. Right. However, we are in a regime where we saw monetary debasement. Now we're looking, dealing with the knock-on effects of that. That's one cycle. That's one process of a changed environment. And Bitcoin continues to, in that context, outperform. And I do believe that remains a fair comparison um, to tech stocks and the like. So it's, it's interesting, but it's a narrative switch. Yes, it's a narrative switch. And one question on that in just a second, but but a very important point that you just made. You know, people say zoom out, look at 10 years, and and that doesn't that's the the key to money is money doesn't have the value. It's the things around it where you put the money that either create or destroy value. So as an investor, you have to say, what is my realistic time frame for this money? And sure. and which one of these options. There's only five or six things you can do with it. Which one of these options am I going to need in the short term, the intermediate term, and the long term? So where can I allocate this capital that aligns with that in percentage terms? And then the institutional investor, they do kind of have an unlimited time frame, mm -hmm. depending on who they are, what they're hedge funds don't, right? It's just flip, you know, generate return. Uh, but your institutional, like a um, you know, pension fund or something like that. They're just matching expected outflows with inflows and, and that time stretches out. So there, you can't really use that as an individual gauge because yours and mine, if we've got, I've got a family, you know, you're getting to travel around the world, your expenses are going to look different, which causes you to okay. pick. Yeah. And so this idea that that that's the only problem that I have with the number go up, well, gravity takes hold of everything at some yep. point. And, and even so, when you actually look at the, uh, you know, within short of those um, repricing, I call them repricing moments, with Bitcoin tends to go on like a vertical move mm -hmm. and then we consolidate for an extended period of time. Yeah, it's generally two years. So, so you have a three, four month period of, of immense um, uh, bullish power and mm -hmm. then it's a year and a bit of sideways and most of that's down. So, you know, most of the time Bitcoin's trending lower. But over yeah. the macro time frame, and this is the thing, if you miss that three to four month period, um, and you know people do studies say it's you know, 20 days of the year, whatever it is, but it doesn't really matter. You're talking about a short span of time that if you're not there, if you're not there for that, and Bitcoin goes on its repricing scheme, which gold also, if you look at- a Every asset has frame. that, you, you have to stay in and you have to realize when I need to rebalance into other assets. Correct. Correct. And, and, you know, that was a lesson that I took from my early market years, um, which, you know, you don't realize when you enter the space, you, you come in, it's like, all right, I've got 10, 10 grand. Let's, let's, let's go. Yeah. And you end up rolling it all into the same concept. But what you actually need to do is, is split and go, well, how much am I actually saving, investing, putting away? Exactly. Um, you can have, this is my 10 year bag. This is my forever bag. This is my trading stack of, you know, 5%, mm -hmm. 10%. Um, working out how you do that as a, as an individual is just so important. Um, that, because if you, until you learn and you understand how you allocate, it's, it's, it's essential. That's the most crucial thing one can do. So we are a wealth management firm, work in the wealth management space, work with high net worth individuals. And, and we have a concept, money is a tool. We're not the only people that have it. You know, a lot of people have it, but there's only five things that you can do with it. You can spend it, you can save it, you can pay down your debt, pay taxes, you can give it away. That's it. So you've got your lifestyle expenses 
your savings for your future self, what you want to do, and then you, you can give it away. So how much generosity that, that helps the world that helps your community. And then taxes are what they are. Yep. You define that by your income. There's really no getting out of it. I mean, you can do some cute stuff, but ultimately tax is tax. And then, um, you know, debt, just keep it low. I mean, you're going to take on debt likely for a car that's short term and it's manageable. You're going to take on debt for a house that's long term, but it's still man. It, it's just math It's manageable. You can figure it out. The key is just not taking on debt for dumb things. But the reality, as you just said, is though that's all you can do. So now if we take it to the investment side, we can buy stocks, we can buy bonds, we can buy uh, Bitcoin and other crypto, we can buy currencies and commodities. That's it. Those are our only choices. And, and so then you just say, well, how granular do I, do I want to get down to the individual level? Do I just want to sit in indices? Do I want to you know, play Bitcoin only? Do I want to spread it around? All that kind of stuff. And that's the noise. So when you sit down and what I think you do a phenomenal job of is just relating the, the, the intricacies that dictate what that cycle looks like you know, for Bitcoin, I know you do some other stuff, but, but Bitcoin, and I think a lot of other on-chain analysts kind of miss that mm -hmm. and, and they just get interpretation of, well, a lot of people are memeing, so that means it's up. No, it's, it is a, it is a complex system. It's increasingly dynamic. Um, you know, we often get queries saying, oh, but on-chains, you know, all the trading goes on on exchanges. So on-chains useless. like, okay. So I did a check the other day. Um, just to satisfy myself. And, uh, you know, I know that we see billions of dollars moving in and out both sides uh, of exchanges every single day. Um, and uh, when you compare it to the spot volume, consistently, the amount of volume, if you add in deposits and withdrawals, if you add those together, um, it's about 60 to 70% of spot volume on a typical basis. So, you know, and, and again, you've got spot volume and we're in a market where granted derivatives are now larger in terms of trade mm -hmm. volume. But we're not talking about the uh, the S and P five hundred minis, right? right. Where they're just hundreds of times larger than what the spot volumes are, yeah. and they are the now the tail that wags the dog. We are still very much in the regime, particularly with a fixed supply asset, where spot volumes, right? That withdrawal process. If people continue to pull those coins out, eventually there will be a supply squeeze. This is just the nature yeah. of the beast. Mm -hmm. um, now, I also think that the term supply squeeze gets uh, massively overused. Right. Yeah. Um, we get, you know, people get confused because like, look at all these coins that are a year old or, you know, six months old or whatever. Um, and that's, that's good. That shows that we've got this kind of impulse of hodling, but they're coins that are discounted. They've been pulled out. They've been stationary. They're not part of the liquid supply. Um, what we're looking for is those coins and you have to flip your thinking. If you've got a bunch of old coins, what do you not want to see? Well, you don't want to see them getting spent. Mm -hmm. Whereas what do you want to see? The other side of the equation, you want to see younger coins getting sucked out of the market. So you actually want to see opposite things in both of those. Exactly. And that that's what is key. You want to look at everything bottom up. Yes. And a lot of people start top down. It takes a little bit of both. So you have to understand top down how the macro works among these different assets, or in this case, just one asset. What's the macro driver? But working bottom up and say, what are all the pieces that, that make that? And just so listeners kind of understand, I know you understand it. Uh, I understand it, but the long-term hodler coins and the short-term coins are just days that they've owned it. And what is, can you remind us what the, you know, what the number of days uh, clarifies each For of those? Sure. So, um, so yeah, this was a, a heuristic that Glassnode developed. Basically what we looked at, I mean, we've got 13 and a bit years, almost 14 years, 
um, of uh, history of these coins moving through the system. And when you map out the probability on any particular day, what's the probability that a coin is going to get spent? And what you basically find is that the longer that it's been unspent or dormant, the longer that a coin has been in an investor's wallet, the less likely it is to be spent. So in other words, the longer someone's held it, the more likely they are to keep holding it. So when you actually map this out, basically after about 155 days, there's been other studies that people have done. They come up with similar numbers, 138, 140. But we're talking about somewhere in that four to five month realm. Mm -hmm. um, once a coin has been held by someone for that amount of time, um, it reaches basically negligible probability. They're less likely to be spent. So when we kind of combine all that together, you know, once it crosses that threshold, you're talking about an improbable cohort. Um, you can subdivide that further. And there's certainly, uh, certainly work we're doing to look into that, how you actually subdivide and think about breaking that section up. Um, but essentially what you've got is a, um, a very unlikely group and a very likely group to spend. In fact, if you look at the spending behavior, most coins, um, I think it's something like 50 or 60% of all on-chain volume are actually coins that were spent within the last 24 hours. So mo mm -hmm. most of it is just continuously it's Just the around. flipping, the guys that are just attention span, can't figure out, you know, exactly. bought at there, one there's, minute there's and traders, 30 minutes later, they're, they're tired of it. There, there's traders, there's wallet management, there's exchange hot wallets. There's all sorts of stuff that, that um, results in this on-chain volume. Um, which is, again, what uh, what we do at Glassnode is we filter out those things. So when we're looking at long and short-term holder coins, um, what we will also do is separate exchanges. So we, we actually remove that supply. So when we're looking at this long and short-term cohorts, they are, in fact, the coins that are outside of those you know, institutions, mm -hmm. at least the ones that we're tracking at the moment. Um, so, you know, we try to capture these different dynamics um, and fully understand, you know, what, what is the probability of these things being spent and moved around? So to me, that's interesting because it's very much what we have in traditional markets, 200 day moving average, roughly like 155. Uh, you got level three quotes. So we see who all the players are and you kind of strip out who the big banks are that hold the asset. And you want to find, uh, okay, which one of these guys are actual traders or hedge funds that are kind of positioning around. Um, and then you got tick data. Um, never really played around with it. Uh, I looked at it a little bit a long time ago, but it's so noisy that it's hard to kind of see around. So, and, it's, and it's the same with a lot of things, right? When you use a faster moving average, you get mm -hmm. more signals, but there, and you'll be in the trend first, but you'll also be in the trend wrong many times. Right. You get more noise, but it's and then you get the slower moving averages, um, which have higher conviction, but you miss the first leg of the move. And this is the exact same across all these data sets. Um, it's right tool, right job, right time frame.